So Philippians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to get you one just so you can follow along. But Philippians chapter 1, let me kind of just catch you up to speed. So last week, we started the book of Philippians, just last week. We went over two whole verses. We uh, looked at Acts, Acts chapter 16 and kind of the start of the church, the birth of the church. But I just want to review really quick. The book of Philippians, who's it written by? Anyone know? Paul, Paul, who's Paul? Paul was once an enemy of Jesus. Paul was once an enemy of Christians. Paul used to persecute Christians. He was a part of the first martyr, of the first Christian who was martyred. Uh, Paul was anti-Jesus, and then one day Jesus radically changed his life. And from that point on, Paul was not an enemy of Jesus, but an advocate for Jesus. God used him radically to change the world, to change the Western world, just to change our common world as we know it. If you guys know anything about Philippians, we mentioned this last week. Where did he write this from? He wrote this from jail, from prison, while being chained to a soldier. And ironically, this book is primarily about a joy centered on Jesus. So here's a guy in prison, chained to a soldier, and he's writing about the joy that he has. And he's writing about how thankful he is for the church of Philippi. Uh, one thing we talked about last week and something I do want to kind of constantly repeat because it's the theme of Philippians is joy is not the absence of trouble. It's the presence of something greater. Joy is not the absence of trouble. It's like that trouble is not in my life, so I'm joyful now. You might have trouble, but it's the presence of something greater in life as well. And that is a centered relationship on Jesus Christ. And so it's not this blind optimism, by the way. When we talk about joy, as we talk about joy, we're not just saying have this blind, optimistic, idealistic viewpoint. I love what one author said. His name was Leslie Newbegin. He was a missiologist and wrote about just like how the, really how the gospel went throughout the world. He said this. He said, let me find it. I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I love that. So like, are you an optimist or pessimist? He's like, I'm neither. Jesus has risen. That's what I am. I love that answer. He's like, know that I have like the trump card of Jesus is risen from the dead. This is, this is all that matters. This is my, are you an optimist, pessimist? Jesus is risen, that's what I know. And so this is Paul's perspective. This is Paul's heart. Now, I want you to think about this church of Philippi because we talked about it last week. Philippi is really unique and it's very important. We'll have a picture of the map for you so you can kind of see it. Philippi was actually the first church plant on the continent of Europe. So this is when the gospel began to go west. We studied last week in Acts 16, Paul wanted to go into Asia, which we would call just modern-day Turkey. He is called Asia Minor, but he wanted to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit says, no, you're going to go to Macedonia. Macedonia, modern-day Greece, essentially. And so this is the first time the gospel went west. Now, why is that a big deal? Those who study this say this book, this church, changed Western history as we know it. The gospel, yes, it went east, but also went west. And it began to shape and form the world as we know it our present world, the Western world as we know it. And this is a life-changing church, a life-changing book. And so we see that Paul's bringing the gospel now into the West, into Philippi, and then eventually Rome, and we're going to see the gospel just spread. Now, here's why this is so important. Here's kind of our theme, too, in case you're like, what is this? So we're looking at Philippi, because Philippi, uh, the city of Philippi, Philippians, was actually a colony of Rome. All right, so here, please don't miss this. Philippi's goal was to bring Roman culture into Philippi. It was, how can we as a city bring Rome here? So they had Latin, they had different, you know, temples built to different Greek and Roman gods. It was to bring Rome culture to the city of Philippi. But here's what Paul's saying. He goes, you're not just a colony of Rome, but more importantly, you're a colony of heaven. Don't seek to bring Rome to Philippi, but bring heaven to Philippi. So I want you to hear this, church. This is our goal. Our goal as a church is, how can we bring heaven to earth? 
how can we seek to bring God, God's will done on earth as it is in heaven? The church's like call in life is to be a little glimpse or a little taste or a little colony of heaven where people walk in and say, what is different about this place? And you say, he, these are citizens of heaven. They're living for something greater. Our culture is a heavenly culture. Just like they had a Roman culture and Roman language, everything was Roman. Paul is saying, bring heaven into the city of Philippi. Bring the gospel, bring the kingdom of God into the city. Amen? Did we get that? Now here's how, how, how. How do we do that? Today specifically, here's how we're going to look at. How do we do that? We do that through prayer. What we're going to look at is how do we bring heaven to earth? How do we bring heaven down? It's simply through prayer. That, that's how Paul starts. He starts off in verse 3 through 11 with just this heart of prayer for the church. And so simply the, the, the title of the message you could say today is just praying the gospel, praying the gospel. In verse 3 through 11, he's praying the gospel over the Philippian church. And, and my hope is that God will kind of redirect our prayers. There's nothing wrong with praying for your needs, my needs. There's nothing wrong for praying for those things. Asking God for help, for strength. There's nothing wrong for, with, for, with doing that. But how do we start praying the gospel into our lives? How do we start praying the gospel into our church, into our community? What does that look like? What does that mean? So let's read. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. We're going to look at praying the gospel, and then we'll pray. All right, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense, of the, the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we get God, just to see Paul, a leader's heart for the church. And God, I just ask, I ask that um, the same heart would be here, that Jesus, we'd be seeking to bring your will into this church, your kingdom into this church, that God, we'd abound more and more in love, that we just see more partnerships in the gospel, that we just see grace complete that work we know it will. Jesus, we're thankful. We're thankful for this time we get to slow down, look to you. So speak to our hearts. Change us through this, we ask in your wonderful name. Amen. About two weeks ago, uh, my wife and I celebrated 10 years of living in Florida. So 10 years ago, two weeks ago, uh, we made the drive from California to Florida. We drove about 3,000 miles here. We, we took a couple friends with us, and it was quite a drive. It took us five days, left early Monday morning. We got here Friday afternoon, and we, we made some stops along the way. And before we left, it's funny, someone gave me a book on water. Don't ask me why. I have no idea why. It's a book about water, uh, the health benefits of water, uh, what water can do for you, like the pH level, like what to avoid, like don't avoid the acidic water. I don't know. I just remember some of that stuff. But it, it gave me a book on water. And I remember on this road trip, we're, I'm reading this book about water, but the whole trip, I'm drinking the most 
terrible fluids you could ever imagine, and the most awful food you could imagine. I mean, just In-N-Out Burger until we got through Arizona. Then like Carl's Jr., just fast food. It was energy drinks, coffee, Gatorade. The whole time I'm drinking, I read a book about water. Halfway through the trip, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm reading about why water is good for me, and like how it just like helps me and think, like everything it does, how it's good for the brain, and I'm like, and I'm doing none of that right now whatsoever. And I've done this before with many other topics. When I was like 20 years old, I read a book on, on prayer that was awesome, incredible, great illustrations. It was so dynamic. All the while I'm reading this book on prayer, I'm thinking, but is my prayer life different? Like I'm reading a book on prayer, but has it made me a prayer warrior? It just kind of made me go, that's interesting. That's good knowledge about prayer. See, and eventually you have to ask, what's the point? Like what's the point of reading a book on prayer? What's the point of reading a book on water or whatever it might be? If it's not going to change our lifestyle, change our patterns, change our habits. See, eventually, obviously, whatever that topic is, whatever we're studying, it needs to lead to transformation. Like, I don't want to be here this morning and say, hey, let's do a sermon on prayer. And we're like, oh, that's cool. Interesting facts. But it doesn't change our prayer life. Like, my, my hope and my prayer is that as we read about how do we pray the gospel, that this will transform our community and how we pray. I think prayers where everything begins and starts or finishes, it's everything. And so I want to be a church that prays the gospel. Uh, a guy named D.A. Carson, he had a great book, a, a commentary on Philippians. I might quote him a couple times today. But here's what he said about this. Listen to this. He says, it takes, about Philippians 1, it takes only a moment's reflection to see that all these petitions are gospel-centered. These are gospel prayers. That is, they are prayers offered to advance the work of the gospel in the lives of the Philippian believers. He goes, every, this prayer, what we're reading here in verse 3 through 11, it's gospel-centered prayers. So how do we pray this into our church? How do we become a praying, gospel-centered church in that, in, that, in that sense? So here's what I want to talk about prayer. Let's just talk about prayer for a second. Why do we pray? Like, really think about it. Why do we pray? I mean, there's so many answers we could give. We could say, man, I want intimacy with God. I want to know God. I want to know the will of God. I want to know the voice of God. We say, well, we pray for God's kingdom to come. Like Jesus said, pray for God's will to be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. I mean, we could, there's all sorts of reasons why we pray. But here's kind of one thought. I think one of the main reasons why we pray is there is a gap between what is and what could be. And really think about this. We pray because what is and what could be, there's a gap between them. And prayer closes that gap. See, if you look at marriages, if you look at your attitudes, we say, hey, look at the state of this marriage. Look at the state of this attitude. Look at the state of this person. And there's a gap so often between what is and what could be. And here's what prayer does. It does change the gap. It closes the gap. So for the exchange, what we are and what we could be, we're probably very far off. But prayer closes that gap. Prayer is so important. You see, now, why is prayer so difficult? Because if I ask this question, like, how many of you pray enough? No one's going to be like, I, play, I pray plenty. Like, no one's going to confess. And if you do, like, shame on you. No one's going to say that they pray enough or they pray all the time. So, but, so why is prayer so difficult? And, and again, there's so many reasons. But honestly, I think simply, we don't maybe believe or think correctly when it comes to prayer. I think many of us, when it comes to prayer, we don't believe it actually works. You know, if, I, if we were to honestly get down to it, it's like, why, why, don't you, why don't you pray? Why don't we pray more? Why don't we pray more effectively? Because I think there's this mindset that kind of prevails in the church so often is, does my prayer really change things? I mean, what's going to happen is going to happen, right? I mean, God is, ultimately, some people outside of the church, they say this is fate. They call it fate. It's just going ha- to happen. Some people within the church call it God's sovereignty. Well, God's sovereign, so it's just going to happen how, the way it should happen. And here's the thing. I believe God is completely sovereign, and he rules and reigns. But I believe in God's sovereignty, he uses prayer. And I believe that God calls us to pray. You see, I, I don't think Paul bought that for a second of whatever is going to happen is just going to happen. I don't think Paul bought that. 
I think Paul had a crazy disciplined prayer life. I believe Paul knew that the human history is also moving to a dramatic end, yes, but also if we pray, being led by the Spirit, we're moving the hand of God in ways where God says, like, yes, you're praying for my will, you're praying, for, yes, I hear that, I listen to that. You see, I think we, we need, there's a sense of prayer that does affect and change things. And I think we need to start to view that again. I want to be a church that prays and prays diligently. I mentioned this last week, but I am so encouraged. But even just walking through the hallway this morning, there's just two women praying over the church. And I'm going, God, let that double next week. Let that triple, whatever it might be, like grow that. You see, we want to be a church that prays the gospel individually and together as a community. And so we see here Paul saying, hey, Philippi, bring heaven to your city. You're not a citizen of Rome. That's secondary. You're a citizen of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, he goes, let me just start off with some prayer. And he says, here's what I pray for. Here's what I'm praying for you. And so I want to look what to pray for. So just a few thoughts, all right? As we look at verse 3 through 11, a few thoughts we can try to summarize in is this. We see him praying for gospel partnerships. Gospel partnerships. We see him praying for grace completion. And lastly, for growing love, all right? Verse 3 to 5, let's look at the first one really quick. What is Paul praying for, essentially? What is he thanking God for, essentially? And that is a gospel partnership. If you would look at verse 3, again, we'll read it. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. All right, I think only Paul can say this. He's like, I always, always pray with you and pray for you with joy. I'm always praying for you. I don't know if you ever had someone say to you, like, hey man, I'm praying for you, and you're like, sure you are, right? Like, don't say that. But I think when Paul says this, he's very sincere. Paul's like, I'm praying, I'm always, I'm always praying for you, and it's with joy. And, and here's the thing, Paul doesn't, I don't think he's just blowing smoke. He doesn't say this to every church. It's not that he doesn't love every epistle or every church he writes to, but specifically with Philippians, you see this unique joy. He even says in verse 8, God is my witness. This great affection I have for you, it's, it's unbelievable. God is my witness of this great love I have for you. I think Paul actually means what he says. He's praying with joy, and you go, how? Like, how could Paul pray with joy? Where is he writing this from? Prison, right? What's prison like? Uh, not like our American prisons. It's not like there's a TV, weight room, library, you know, like some food. It's, it's literally a dungeon, and you have to count on outside people to bring you food or books or clothing, everything. You're counting on outside people. Paul is saying, I'm writing to you. I'm praying for you. And I'm praying with joy. And here's the thing. In Paul's, you could say, despair, in prison, in Paul's pain, he has so much joy and I do think one of the key things is praying for others despite your circumstances. Let's all admit, when I'm going through something, when I'm like actually suffering, if, I, if I'm in prison, probably my last thought is how can I pray for someone else, <laughs> right? Like Paul's like, I'm praying for you. I'm in prison, it's okay. I'm praying for you. And I think that's where Paul finds a sense of joy. Even though he's suffering, he goes, my focus isn't on me. My focus is on this church, on you guys. I'm, I'm thankful for you. Actually, in verse 5, and, and you say, what is he thankful for? He says it clearly, if you look again uh, in verse 4 and 5. He says, for your fellowship in the gospel. For your fellowship in the gospel. If you were, circle that word fellowship. If you have the ESV, I think it does a better translation of this. He actually says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the word fellowship or partnership, here's the idea. It's this word our Greek word of the day, you ready? Greek word of the day that you've probably heard a lot is koinonia. Okay, maybe you've never heard that word. Now, I gotta explain something. I grew up in the church and this was the most overused Greek word I've heard my entire life. Like we had koinonia coffee, koinonia cookies, 
the Koinonia knitting group. I was like, everything was Koinonia. It's like, oh, we're the fellowship. We're the Koinonia group. We're the part. Like, this was so overused. And so I kind of got, like, bitter at that word. Like, oh, let's go have some Koinonia, man. I'm like, stop it. Like, it's so frustrating. Um, maybe you've heard that word or not. And I do think it's kind of, we can be, even as Christians, we think just because we had coffee together and we're Christians, it's fellowship. Right? Watching the Super Bowl, fellowship. Like, it's, I think it's a cop-out. If we water down the word. Here, here's the idea. He's literally saying this is a partnership. It's active. Listen, it's active participation, sharing. It's actually a legal partnership. Again, we take words that were, like, Greek, and we, like, Christianize them. This was not a Christian word. This was, like, a, a Roman word, koinonia, like, looking for true community, true partnership, true friendship, and like Christians, like, oh, that's a good word. We're going to take that. That's ours. What is this? And we have true koinonia. So what is this idea of koinonia? Listen, this even has um, the idea of like financial undertones to it. We're partners together. Actually, it's really interesting. Romans 15, 26. We'll put the verse up here. This is how it's used. Paul writes, it pleased, listen, because this applies to Philippi. He says, for it pleased those from Macedonia, Philippi, right? It pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. That word contribution is literally the word koinonia. He goes, Philippi, this, these churches in, in Macedonia and Achaia, they actually gave financial money. They gave money. They gave fellowship to those who are poor in Jerusalem. You see, this idea of, of koinonia, it literally was used as just a strong term as a part. So the idea would be this. Um, there's two people, and they say, let's go in on buying a boat together. We're going to buy the boat. We're going we're to share the cost of the, of the boat. Uh, once we get the boat, we'll share the profits. If we have a bad season and lose money, we'll, we'll also lose the profits together. If we ever sell the boat and make some money off it, we'll share the profits in that way. It was literally used in that way. This is like a business partnership. It's a business relationship. It's almost like, but the idea is you're both mutually invested in. You're both all in. It can't be that there's one person all in in that idea and one person who's not. It's like we both have to be all in on this. And he goes, I thank God for your fellowship, for your partnership, for your koinonia in the gospel, that you were a partner with me in this. Again, D.A. Carson said this about fellowship. He says, Christian fellowship, listen, Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. The idea of a true fellowship or partnership is I'm going to adjust everything in my life and base it off of the most important thing, and that is a relationship with God. That is the gospel. That is we're both here to advance the kingdom of God. We're both here to tell the story, the narrative of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do. He goes, we're partners in this. We're we are like mutual partners in this together. And church, this is so important. He's praying and thanking God for his gospel partnerships. And I, I do want to say this. I'm so thankful for the gospel partnerships here. There is a sense of we're all going, we want to seek Jesus together. We want to further the kingdom together. Will we blow it? Will we hurt each other? Of course. But we're ultimately partners in the gospel. We, we ultimately, and we, in a sense, we all have skin in the game. We all have stock in this. We all have something, like in a sense, we, when we see people get saved, we all participate in that. We see someone get baptized, we all participate in that. There's something like we're all in together on this. There's that gospel partnership. And I, please, I just think this is so important for us to slow down and talk through. Now, our church might not have a formal membership, but we are not anti-membership. So I'll be really clear. I think sometimes we can talk like, oh, we don't, no, we're not anti-membership. There's actually so many ben benefits to having a real membership. The idea for us of, of a membership is saying, there's two people saying, I'm going to do life with you and I'm going to do life with you. And maybe one day God will lead us in that direction. I, I don't know. But there's something about two people 
saying, I'm all in on this, and I'm all in on this. Because the opposite of this, the opposite of a covenant relationship is a consumer relationship. See, the opposite of a gospel partnership is I'm a consumer. I go because I like this. If I, as soon as I don't like something, I'm out. As soon as something doesn't go my way, I'm out. There's something better down the road. It's like we treat like Burger King, McDonald's, and there's other places. It's like, no, Paul's saying, I'm so thankful for this gospel partnership. You guys, you guys, and if you guys know that the story of the Philippian church, when he's in prison, they sent a man, we'll talk about him, Epaphroditus. They sent him to bring money and food and clothing to Paul so he could live and live for many years while being imprisoned. And he's like, I'm so thankful for your gospel partnership. And not only that, he goes, you help those in Jerusalem who are poor. This is a very loving church. This is a very gospel-centered church. And he goes, I thank God for you. I'm praying for you. Guys, we're praying for more gospel partnerships. People who say, I'm all about Jesus. I want to serve Jesus, know Jesus. I want to do it with other people. I want to be in community. I want to advance the kingdom together. That, that, is, what we're, that is the idea of the church. There's a gospel partnership. We all have skin in the game. We're all fighting together, not against each other, to advance the further of, of, the, the further the kingdom of God. Amen? That is the main idea of this gospel partnership. Listen, church, let's be praying, as Paul was, and thanking God for gospel partnerships. So this week, I had to just go, God, and as people, certain people come to mind, thank you for this gospel partnership. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for this koinonia, where people come together and say we're all about Jesus here. Amen? That is our desire. Our desire is to be a church centered on Jesus and everything we do. And then he says, as he's talking about this, he's talking about this confidence he has, but he's talking about how they're fellow partakers of grace. And so we're looking at grace completion. All right, grace completion. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is written for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He says, you're all partakers of this grace. God started something in you. God's made faithful to complete it. Let's just talk about this, because I know that for many of you, like Philippians 1, 6, like, is your life first? Like, yes. Like, I don't care about the other verses before and after. Just talk about verse 6. Okay, let's talk about verse 6. All right. Here's what's beautiful about this. Um, human nature, we're, we're really good. I'm really good at starting things and not finishing things. Really good at it. I have a lot of things I've started and not finished. All right, that is not in God's nature. God starts something. God creates something. He's finishing it. He's going to finish it. I want you to think just through this. Like, I don't know how many of you have, uh, my wife and I, we went, to, we went to Egypt like 10 years ago. And it's so bizarre. We're driving around, and there's all these buildings and apartment buildings that are halfway done. I mean, it's literally just like, like walls, emptiness, and like these, like, I don't know, poles sticking out of the buildings. And we asked the bus driver, like, what's with all, like, all of these buildings everywhere unfinished? It's like, yeah, we're just kind of known for that. We're kind of known for starting things, not finishing it. And once money comes in, once resources or knowledge comes in, then we'll finish it one day. We're like, what? Like, you start a project without knowing if you can finish it? Like, yeah, all the time. Like, well, like, what if God did that? God doesn't do that. I'm so glad to know that God starts something and he finishes it. I mean, think through, like, how many of you have, have a book that you bought and you're dying to read it? You've never read it. Or you've read, like, two chapters or you've read like a page, right? And you're like, oh, I've read a page. I kind of know the book now. Like we're really good at starting something, but not finishing it. And here's the thing. Whenever God starts, he finishes. And Paul said, I want to remind you of something. God started something in your life and he's going to finish it. Charles Spurgeon said, said this about this verse. So profound. He says, where, listen, where is there an instance of God's beginning any work and leaving it incomplete? Show me for once a world abandoned and thrown aside half formed. 
Show me a universe cast off from the great potter's wheel with the design outline, the clay half-hardened, and the form unshapely from incompleteness. Show me. He goes, no, you, you, won't, you won't be able to show me this. Whatever God starts, he finishes. So here's what I, I do enjoy so often to do. Like we, we, I want to like break this down and walk through this, all right? Let's just walk through this briefly. Look at the first phrase. He says, being confident. Can you look at that? Being confident of this very thing. This word confident means to be persuaded, sure, absolutely going to happen. He said, I'm absolutely sure if God has started something, he's going to finish it. You cannot convince me otherwise. He goes, I'm so confident in this. Here's the thing. I think there are a lot of Christians I've spoken to, and I've been one for many years, and I did not have confidence. I did not have confidence in my faith. I did not have confidence in my salvation. I've had people say, just how can I really know I'm saved? How can I really know I'm born again? Maybe you've wondered that. You go, how can I really know? You know, the book First John radically changed my life. We went through that like a year and a half ago because John says, I'm writing this book so you can know you have eternal life. You can know that. You can know that. You see, John or Paul, they say the same thing. You can be confident. If God started something, he's going to finish it. Be confident. I'm absolutely sure of this. You cannot convince me otherwise. Don't even try to convince me otherwise. That's the word he's using. He says, being confident, let's keep going through this verse, being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work. Next point of emphasis is he. He began a work, all right? Not you, not me, not some other person. Who began the work in our, in our life? God. God started it. God's gonna, the, the weight's on him. The responsibility's on him. He began the work. You know, Paul said it this way, or the author of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews 12. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the author of it. He's the finisher of it. You know, we think we're writing our own story. We're just a character. God's writing the story. He's the author of it all. He's going to start something. If he starts something, he's going to finish it. He said he began it. And, and here's what our, our responsibility is. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. Looking unto Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 2, that word look is like fixing your eyes and not looking at another. I'm fixing my eyes upon Jesus. I'm going to only look to Jesus. It's Peter when he gets out of the boat, right? And he's looking at Jesus and he's walking on water and then the wind rises and the waves rise. And what does he do? He takes his eyes off of Jesus and onto the waves and onto the circumstances and that's when he begins to sink. You see, when you, you fix your eyes on Jesus, then you have stable ground. And he's saying, looking unto Jesus. I'm, I'm steadfast looking unto Jesus. He started this, he's going to finish it. He's the author, he's the finisher. He says, he who has begun a good work. Now let's think through those two words, good work, good work. Let's look at the first word, work. Um, I don't know if you know this, but you and I are a piece of work so often with God. Um, we are a project is kind of the idea. I'm not trying to like even like, overemphasize this, that word work means to toil and to labor. God began a good toiling process and labor process in your life and in my life. That's the word. God is toiling and working and laboring over us. I don't know if you've ever seen like a, a Princess Diaries kind of movie or Miss Congeniality movie, right? Where there's like this girl who's like, she's really pretty, but like she's like, kind of like looks goofy or glasses and she hairs everywhere and she's like, just kind of a mess, right? There's always this like guy that's going to fix her. It's like, oh, she's, this is a catastrophe, right? Like looks at her and like some like fast scene goes by and she comes out and she like looks beautiful and she's elegant and she has manners all of a sudden. You're like, what the heck happened? He's like, oh, just magic. I don't know if like, but whatever, like all those kind of chick flicks are the same in that sense. Like someone not so good, someone makes them beautiful. This is the idea. Like it's, it's work though. It's work. It took time. It took energy. It took money. It took a lot. It's work. Here's the thing. God, we're a, pre we're a project so often. 
I don't care how smart you are, how brilliant you are, how incredible you think you are. You and I are a project. God's like, I began something, I'm going to finish it. Also, he says a good work. Not a tedious work, not a monotonous work, a good work. Can I tell you, God only does good work. God created and he goes, it's good. We brought in sin into the world. We rebelled, but God created everything good. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above. God began a good work. I don't know if you've ever read this story. It really is interesting about uh, Michelangelo and the statue of David. Maybe you know this. Most historians believe this is a very it's a true story, but if you guys know the story, there was like a 19-foot tall piece of marble that different um, sculptors and artists of the day rejected that. Like, we don't want this marble. It's not good. It's flawed marble. It's actually been said that Leonardo da Vinci saw that 19-foot piece of marble and was like, nothing good can come from this. So Michelangelo's like, give it to me. And so Michelangelo, he's like known for saying something like this, like there is a beautiful art piece in there. We just need to chip away at it until we find it. It's like there's something beautiful in there. We just don't see it yet. He's like, so I'm going to chip away. And it took about three or four years. And what did he create? He created the David, right? And I think we have a picture of the David and only the upper half because that's, that's, that's church. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he created the David. Uh, I, I love, it's, it's sorry, it's so good. But he created this and we actually, we saw it's 17 feet tall. And, he's, and people that rejected this piece of marble said there's nothing good. It's flawed. It's flawed marble. Nothing good can come from this. But you put it in the hands of a skillful artist, and he can make something beautiful. And I do believe you look at us, and people can say nothing good can come from this, but put it in the hands of God, and he can make something beautiful. He's like, I make all things new. I'll make this beautiful. That's what God has done with me, and I pray that's what God's done with you. I don't want to just like, talk about this all day, but I, I pray that you've experienced this work of God in your life. And here's the thing. It says what? He will complete it. We're not done yet. Can we just acknowledge that? When you understand, when I understand this, God's not done with me yet. God's not done with you yet. There's no room for pride in my life or your life. God's not done with me yet. He's not done with you yet. We're, we're still looking, like imagine the artist, if you've ever seen an art, like an artist start a painting or anything, and you walk in and it's like 20% done, 50% done, you're like, what is this? And they're like, just see. You're like, I can't see it. <laughs> like, I can't see what you're trying to do here. He's like, but just wait. And I feel like so often we, we can look and go, God, what are you doing here? And he's like, just see, just wait. You're like, I can't see it. I, I know. I know you can't see it. But it's going to be made beautiful. And that's what we see him doing. He says he will complete it. He began it. He will finish it. We might not be good. And here's, can I just point this out too? We will run out of resources. We might run out of expertise in that area. God will not run out of resources and God will not run out of expertise. He's, if he started something, he's going to finish it. And he says, when? Until the day of Jesus. See, here, here's the goal. What's God going to complete? 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see Jesus, we'll be like him. What's the goal that we'll be like Jesus? When will that happen? When we see him. Will that happen here? No. <laughs> when we see Jesus. We're with Jesus face to face. So there's this, all, there's this constant work in progress. And I hope this helps change how you view your spouse, your friend, the church, God's starting something. It might be messy. It might be we're just on the top layer, on the bottom layer. It might be there's 5% done, 90% done, but God's starting something. He's going to finish it. He says, until the day of Jesus, until Yom Yahweh. I mean, in the Old Testament, it talks about the day of the Lord. It's literally Yom Yahweh over and over. Yom Yahweh, it's saying the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day where God makes everything right. People look at this world and go, it's a mess. It's broken. Where is God? We're waiting for the day of the Lord. God will fix it. God will make it right. God will bring all the justice for all the injustices. And we're, we're praying for that day. We look forward to that day. We long for that day, the Bible says. The day of the Lord, the Yom Yahweh, where God makes all things new. He fixes it, where he, he balances all the injustices we've seen, where he gives mercy to those who called upon him. 
and there's this idea that God will complete it at the day of Jesus. And Paul's like, I'm praying, I'm confident. I'm pa- you're, you're a partaker of grace. You're a partaker of grace with me in verse 7. And I'm confident God started something, he's going to finish it. We're praying for grace completion. Amen? Lastly this, uh, we're praying for growing love. <laughs> growing love. Look at verse 9. He says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let me just point this out. They are an incredibly loving church. Like I mentioned last week, there's not a lot of negative things. We'll read about something in Philippians 4 between two women who are fighting in the church. But there's not a lot of negative things happening in this church. Paul's basically saying, you guys are doing great, but I'm just praying for more of it. You guys are really loving, but love more. I want your love to abound. But what kind of love? Do you notice this? He goes in all knowledge and discernment. It's possible they had a shallow love. It's possible they loved, but maybe without discernment. I think this is important. I think we should grow and abound in love, but love that is discerning, love that has knowledge back to it, not a shallow love. So for example, I think there's this prevailing thought today in the world and so often in the church is this, is if you love me, if you truly love me, you'll accept everything about me and never pass any judgment. And I think there's something, there's something true about that and there's something completely false about that. You see, I'm so thankful God loves me and God loves you and embraces us for who we are, but in his love, he goes, I cannot let you stay that way. I love you just the way you are, but I love you so much that I cannot let you say that way. There's something I need to do. You see, people want to act like love is only inclusive. You guys think about this. Love, the nature of love is very exclusive. And let me explain. Uh, the day I said I do to my wife, the day I said you're mine, the day I said you're mine, the day she said um, she's mine, I'm hers, was the day I said no to every other woman. See, love is, is, is very exclusive in that way. Now, love is available through all, but it's only through the person of Jesus. So it's interesting how love is described as completely inclusive. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, exclusive. It's very inclusive and it's very exclusive. You see, again, in in my marriage, I go, wife, honey, I love you. I'm not going to say, I love you so much. Do whatever you want. You like that guy? Like, that's not going to happen, right? The nature of love in itself is very exclusive in that way. And here's what he's saying. He says, let your love be with discernment and knowledge. You see, there's a side of it where, like, we love someone so much, you know, you're doing something harmful to you. You're, you're hurting yourself. I love you. I can't allow you to do that. I'm not just going to accept this. I'm not just going to be okay with it. You're believing something that's going to lead to just pain and suffering. You're believing something that's cancerous. You're doing something in your lifestyle that's hurting you or hurting others, and you don't even see it yet because it's, it's just based off enjoyment completely and only. But I love you so much, I have to speak into this. I love you so much, I have to do something about it. You see, love is not just this blind, he's not, he's not talking about blind love here. He says, let your love be with discernment. You see, I, I, honestly, for some of you, maybe for some of you who are younger, my fear sometimes is there's like a love with just with complete trust for everyone and anything. Someone texts you, someone DMs you, someone reaches out to you, and it's like, well, they go to church. <laughs> I trust them. Like, no, ah, don't. All right? And you're like, did you say that? Yeah, yeah. Show love with discernment. <laughs> Show love with wisdom. I think sometimes you can open yourself up too soon emotionally, spiritually, physically, and, and it's really not true love. It's not discerning love. It's not love that's backed by Jesus. It's maybe a shallower love. And he says, no, abound in love with all discernment and knowledge. I pray that we have a rich love, a pure love, a, a deep love, a love that has knowledge and discernment attached to it. And he ends with this. And again, I think the ESV does a better translation of this verse. He ends verse 11 and it says, filled, listen, we'll put the verse up here, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. 
I'm praying that you're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Your righteousness comes through Jesus. Anything good in you, it's Jesus. <laughs> Can we acknowledge that? He goes, anything, your, the righteousness, the fruit, the, all that in your life, it's, it's because of Jesus. It came through Jesus. See, this is the idea of, the Bible uses this word imputation, that Jesus' righteousness was imputed or given to you. My bank account was not just at zero, it was at negative infinity, and now I have Jesus' righteousness given to my account, and now it's at infinity. It didn't just go to zero. Like, now I have it all. He says, you have Christ's righteousness in you. See, why can we love? Because he first loved us. Why am I able to grow in love? Because God has infinite love, and I'm backed by that God. Abound in love, fill with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. I mean, this is, and I've mentioned this, but this is why we are called the exchange. That God who is rich became poor, so you and I who are poor might become rich. And not rich financially, but rich spiritually, rich in the gospel. We were dead in our sins, and God has made us alive together with Jesus. We were once poor, but made rich by Christ. You know the grace of Jesus. You know the grace of Jesus. I would be absolutely lost and miserable without him. But we have the richness of Jesus. He says, your righteousness is Jesus' righteousness in you. Be filled with that. That's what I'm praying for, that you never boast in your own good works, boast in how smart you are, boast in how many verses you have memorized, boast in your purity for the church, that you boast in Jesus, that you boast in him and what he's done. Let us hear that, church. Let us not think for a second that our righteousness is ever above Christ's righteousness. Let us boast in his, because I'm praying for you to grow in love, that you be filled with the righteousness of Christ. And here's what we're going to do. We, we're going to take communion today, and it's so fitting because when we hold that cracker, we hold that cup, we're reminded I'm saved by the blood and body of Jesus. It's his body. It's his life. That he was my substitute, that he took my place, and by faith in him I'm saved. And what we do, we, we hold these elements symbolically just to remember the fact that my sin was transferred to Jesus and his righteousness was transferred over to me. Amen? So here's what we're going to do, in case you are new to this. We do take communion every so often, and for us it's a time just to say, we want to remember the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And listen, if you believe in Jesus, if Jesus, guys listen, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, take this. If he's not your Lord and Savior, there's no need to take this. There's absolutely no need. Why remember something you don't believe in? So if, if that cup comes to you and you go, I don't know if I believe this, you can let it pass. But if you're sitting here saying, no, I believe this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He rose again on the third day. I believe that Jesus was my substitute. They were saying, as that communion comes before you, that you just take it. Take a minute, you guys, where you are. I'm not going to come back up here and talk more about it. Wherever you are, get that communion and just talk to Jesus. Thank Jesus. Pray over what we just talked about. God, I want to be a partner in the gospel. I want to be a partner in the gospel. God, I thank you that you started something in my life. Complete it. I know you're going to do that. God, I ask that you grow me in love with all wisdom and discernment. Pray this over your life. Talk to Jesus about this. God, make me more of a gospel-centered person, a person who's constantly focused on the story of Jesus, on the person of Jesus. My hope is that you guys can take that. We can take that time and do that. So we're going to pass out communion in just a second. We're going to play some worship while we do that. While they're playing, feel free just to pray over communion. Take it when you're ready, and then we'll come back up here and just close out in prayer. All right, let me pray over you guys. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you gave your one and only, that you gave the best, you gave your son for us. And God, even now, as we hold that bread that symbolizes your body and that, that cup filled with juice that symbolizes your blood, Jesus, we're so thankful that by your stripes we're healed. That God, we know without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus, we, we look to you now. We want to thank you now. 
God, I just pray this over our church that we'd grow in grace, that we'd have true gospel partnerships here, that God, our love would grow, but let it be with wisdom and discernment. And we ask this, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Feel free to come forward, pass out communion, and also feel free to worship as you get your communion.